I'm clagging up. Yeah, and you're about I'm to clagging you're about up. to do your my my you know when you see your whole life flash before your eyes i know that every time i hear that song now that's what i'm gonna hear mm. oh god there's so, so <laughs> much really clever. so yeah, because much. you stomped off to the loo with a pa- whole packet of okay no i took one for the road and i had one more when i got back in it's you know when they've they've actually formed a kind of wall on the outer it's cheesy as well it's a cheesy oatcake I can hear it in your I can hear it in your voice as well it's it's cheesy oatcake (laughs) I can't do this I just can't it's formed a wall (laughs) A is for anything B for baby blue C is classy clams and clogs D for doggy doos T is easy F for flange G for gammon H for ham I for idiot You're an idiot I'm an idiot Jerry K is kooky L for lads Margaret ladies Lads, lads, lads M for mummy M for knock knock Who's there? Pee pee who? Here go QRSTU for ugly V for Venus W for W X is hard to comprehend Why can't I just reach the end? Z for zebra Zink and zany Spaglioni Zip zucchini Zoo and zoo and zippelin too The alphabet is really cool well, we're here, we're in the booth, we're back for another week. Yep, and it's M. Well, none of us are doing M. What? As in James Bond. Do, 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 do. Oh, yeah, that's... That's a faux pas. That's a point. Eh, I don't know how much I would... Well, I've not researched her, but I don't know how much I'd have to say about M. She's not always a she. They... For a start, I tried, <laughs> I tried to watch uh, Send Her Off Rare Tomorrow Never Dies a couple of weeks ago. Is that a Pierce Brosnan one? Yeah. yeah. And uh, M is a woman in that one. I, that Judy! Judy! I only know M as Judy Dench. Tomorrow Never Dies features, as I think literally every James Bond does, the line from Miss Honey Penny. Money. Money. Money Penny. Oh, James, he always was a cunning linguist because he's speaking... Oh, yeah, yeah, cunning, cunning linguist. Yeah. Nothing gets past us, Marie. <laughs> you two <laughs> are very sharp. When it comes to cunny and lingus. <laughs> yeah, lingus. <laughs> <laughs> now, hang on. What means what in that? Cunny means what and lingus means what? Lingus Cunt is tongue. <laughs> <laughs> I guess cunny must be... Cunty. Cunty. Yeah. Fanny. <laughs> Ew. Maybe. This is really more your area. (laughs) Why are you looking at me? Look at Jelly. I'm looking at both of you. (laughs) With both eyeballs at the same time, they're going in different directions. Oh, apparently my dad went to school with someone that could do that. (laughs) 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 Can he lingus? No. (laughs) I think he could put his eyes in different directions. Okay. Um, So you're going first, aren't you? Well, well, kicking K. Well, I'm going to do memory (laughs) kicking K. But not M for memory. (laughs) Because I feel like mine is failing me a lot at the moment mm-hmm. and I've just been thinking about memory. You know, people in my life are getting older. Memory starts to go a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and it's fascinating. You, oh, actually, someone once told me, I think I read it somewhere, and this is what I'm going to start the whole thing off with, but I'm not sure if it's true, <laughs> that when you, and it's really stuck with me, if you will, it's a memory. <laughs> Uh, that when you remember something, yeah. So the first time you remember it, you're remembering what happened to you when that ha- when that physically happened, and even then it might be 
you might remember it slightly skew with. Every time you remember it from that point onwards, you're remembering your last memory rather mm. than the actual thing that happened. Isn't that bananas? Mm. Yeah. I guess there's no other way. There's no way of putting it back on that shelf in your brain without your brain knowing you've taken it off the shelf before. I think I've stolen that shelf analogy from, did you come upon my Malcolm Gladwell in any of this? No. He's written about memory a lot. And it's like the corruption of memory. The more some of our best memories are the most flawed and incorrect because we revisit them so often. I have a lot of that from childhood, like stuff I don't know if it's a memory or if it's a dream I had as a child that was logged as a memory. Yeah. Or a photo that you saw. Yeah. Or something like yeah. stuff like that. This is what's crazy about it. If you get too far into it, you're just like, what is real? Oh, God, yeah. Mm. Absolutely. Actually, I have some questions for you both. Just about memories. Can you remember your earliest memories? Is that something that... Well, I can remember my... I have the earliest memory that I can remem- remember. Yeah. Mm. Very good, very good. <laughs> <laughs> that was very Kenneth Branagh. <laughs> I think I was just in my bed Aww. as per... And I think I must have been under the age of four because we hadn't moved house. And I was very scared. Oh, no. And... That's what I can remember. So funny, isn't it? The fact that your life just may as well not have existed before that. But obviously it did. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? Because you just can't remember anything. Because you just can't remember anything. Yeah. Probably because it's all quite horrible. Well, uh, something that I read said that you don't tend to build the muscle of, flex the muscle of remembering things until you're like four. Right. And a lot of that is to do with just like self-protection. I have quite a clear first memory. Come on. If you want to know. I do, please. That's um, why I asked. I would think I would be like under four because it involves my cat and she moved out Interesting. before both, I was four. Both around the same age, mm. you think? Hang on, your cat moved out? Yeah, she moved out. <laughs> Hang on a minute, Jack. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, that is more important. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, she just, she cleared off. She didn't leave the vicinity, but she moved out of the house into the shed. Right. And she stayed there what? until she was Why? 19. She cho- a- she By choice. I'm not quite... I think it's because they were doing disruptive work in the house and she didn't want to be in there. And then we got dogs and she was scared of the dogs. So she lived in the shed until she was 19 and then she got dementia and she came back in for scraps of food at night. And God, that's quite a bleak story, actually. Yeah. Could happen to any one of us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to get renegade to the shed when some more interesting dogs come along. No, it was before Doubt. the dogs. Doubt. The dogs were just the Darling. nail in the coffin. Okay. So what you need to know is I'm under four. I might be three. I could be two. I'm sitting at the top of the stairs and Matilda, she who was the cat, mm. um, walked past me and I was staring at her asshole. <laughs> For oh, God's sake. sake. Because I remember finding it so peculiar looking and funny. Like a little sausage roll. Like a little sausage roll, like a little kind of clam. Oh. A dehydrated one. Yeah. And she w- ran past and I wanted to have her near me. Not because of the arsehole. <laughs> when you say her, are you referring to the arsehole? <laughs> And uh, that's the memory. And she sort of trotted down the stairs, and I was just looking at her asshole. And that's your that's the well, earliest thing you Well, I don't know if remember. that's my earliest memory, but I know that that's a very early memory because of the timeline that I've explained. Mm. Her asshole was I not think, in the house. I think we all know why she moved out. <laughs> yeah. 
Someone was spending a little bit too much time on our arsehole. <laughs> on it? Yeah. As in like... Playing it like a pan fight. No, no. Just... <laughs> oh, no. I've always just been like pondering. <laughs> she pondered his arsehole gently. Crystal clear. Crystal clear. I think mine is not that anyone asked, but um, <laughs> Jelly, what's yours? Mine, I think, is I have a really vague twinklings of memories of nursery, of being at nursery in London, a nursery called Busy Bees. Shout out! And I, so I must have been like seven, two, <laughs> very advanced, maybe even un, just under two. But that's the first thing, and then the next clear thing I can remember is my first day of school, which was four. So right. I don't know what happened in between then, but I can remember it was a half day and I can just remember feeling so like anxious and scared and not wanting to leave my mum and then having a nice morning. It's kind of the story of my life. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I know what you mean. So with that, what the bloody hell is going on? <laughs> what is memory? Well, it's the ongoing process of information retention over time. And how does it work? <laughs> well, it's all about connection, ladies. So when we learn something, even as simple as like someone's name, like scientifically what's happening, bearing in mind this is all shoddy, shoddy research. So if there are any scientists listening... You don't have to tell <laughs> I us think everyone. That. Yeah. I think everyone listening at this point knows. Please do. Oh, actually quite a lot of it's from Science Daily. Never heard of it. Rachel Daly's sister. Uh <laughs> point is that when we learn things we form connections between neurons in the brain which is our synapses creating new circuits between nerve cells which essentially kind of like remaps your brain which is quite crazy so I guess initially it's like a blank map and then the more things you learn the map grows and takes shape and then there's really interesting stuff about forgetting stuff and how actually obviously we think about being like forgetful or forgetting things as maybe more of a negative thing but your brain apparently a lot of this happens while you're sleeping sifts through what information is relevant and what isn't and then just boots the irrelevant information out of your brain mm. and then which like makes more room which makes more room Love and that. obviously like trauma responses are often like your brain forgets stuff to protect it from the reality of what actually happened maybe my mum or someone told me that you release a hormone when you're going through labour that blocks certain like neural pathways being formed so you can't remember how horrific childbirth is. That kind is. of makes sense. I feel like if you think about have you ever had have you ever had an accident? I know you have, both of you. Yeah. Wait, but like like in the painful like body bodily harm. And in the moment it's just like if you try to think of that specific point of the thing happening, it's quite difficult to remember that. Yeah. It's more like after the pain that that you like as you heal yeah anything i think was like anything with shock as well right surely because that's just a kind of different kind of response yeah exactly and then i've written the sheer number of possible connections gives the brain when i say written i mean copied and pasted gives the brain <laughs> <laughs> unfathomable flexibility each of the brain's 100 billion nerve cells can have 10,000 connections to other nerve cells ooh that's a lot of nerves. That is. That's a lot of connections. You've got a lot of nerve, young you lady. You've got a lot of nerve. These synapses get stronger or weaker depending on how often we're exposed to an event. What's going on there? 
I'm just happy. Okay. Just happy with that joke. Oh, no, just happy. Nice and to be that. back in the booth. Yeah. The more we're exposed to an activity, the stronger the connections, which makes sense. And I was thinking about this in relation to to playing the bass. Yeah. And how, which I found recently interesting when I've been practicing. Uh, good way of slipping into yeah. the boss that you've been practicing. <laughs> good, good, good. <laughs> it's, it's really interesting what comes back really quickly and what takes a little bit more time. And like even some of the stuff, if I stop thinking about it, my body just, my hands know where to go. Whereas if I'm thinking about it too much, I'm like, oh, what the fuck is it? Mm. So I guess that's just because we did it so much. Mm. that Sweet musical uh, memory. Yeah. It's crazy. And I guess it's probably, well, yeah, I don't know. It's just interesting, isn't it? I remember when I was learning to drive <clears throat> and I'd had like one or two lessons. So we're still trying to think of very one, two, three step like this. You turn on the car. And so I was asking my mum, I was like, so wait, do you switch on the ignition and then do you put your foot on the clutch and then do you go into gear after that? And she was like, oh, I don't know. Because she just yeah, does it. yeah. it's like when you put your card in and you forget your pin code, you can't like go to locate it in your mind almost without doing that physical movement yeah and if you don't it, it's easier to recall almost if you're not like what's the answer to that yeah you just let your body do the talk do it yes <laughs> and that's that's a thing called like it's something like dual action memory where you're where you have your working memory and then you're like implicit memory and your working memory is actively doing stuff and your your implicit memory is bringing forward stuff that's just completely ingrained in you Right. So it's like two things going on at once, which is quite cool. Yeah, so it's literally, it's like pathways forming in your brain, which is quite bananas. I mean, I know that's how everything is, but... Do they just float? Are they in like a liquid? Oh, now you've got me. <laughs> it's like picturing the internet. Yeah. Yeah. But in fact, a lot of stuff compares stuff to the internet. Says the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on a minute. <laughs> what else can I tell you? Well, we have... <laughs> <laughs> Three main types of memory. Number one, our sensory memory, which allows you to remember sensory information after the whatever stimulating you has ended. Researchers who classify memory more as stages and types believe that all memories, all of our memories stem from the formation of sensory memories. And a sensory memory <laughs> it, uh, is comprised of three main sections iconic is what it's called which is obtained through sight echoic which is auditory and haptic which is through touch right and then there must be smell typically your sensory memory only holds on to information for brief periods remembering the sensation of a person's touch or a sound and like 80% of our memory comes from our is it is ignited by smell your olfactory bit yeah. is what holds the key to like your entire memory do you remember why that is Yes. From the fragrance episode. From the fragrance episode. It's because they're all such individual molecular build-ups that they're very, very unique. So when you do smell something the same, it's so rare that the memory that it triggers will be like a very singular memory. Wow. That's really cool. It's really cool. Back to our sensory memory. Yes, yes. If a sensory experience happens enough, like the smell of burning an egg... <laughs> 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 then you start to attach. You guys don't burn your eggs often? <laughs> Moving on. Basically, if you have a sensory 
experience enough, you start to attach other memories to it and the sensory experience stops living in your sensory memory and might move to either your short or long-term memory depending on what's going on in the memory. So sensory memory is like step one. one. Yeah. And then you have your short-term or working memory, which allows you to recall specific information about anything at all for a really short period of time. So it's not as fleeting, but it's still pretty short. It's apparently only meant to last for about 30 seconds, which is batshit. Short-term memory only stores between five and nine items of information at once, with seven being the, like, average number that people have. So you can only hold, and information is, like, items is any piece of information, So, which is feels... That's really... so difficult to imagine or, like, quantify, because I feel exactly. like information in my brain is rarely a complete fact. It's just, like, half... Or a quarter of the fact. And it's always the most useless bit that I remember. And it also feels like you're holding like a billion different things in your brain at once. Mm. But that will be like at different stages of your memory. So a lot of that will be actually long-term stuff that you're recalling rather than like a new piece of information that is being held in your short-term memory before you go off and do something else with it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Then we have our long-term memory, Mm. which is where most of our memories are stored. And any memory we can still recall after 30 seconds could technically classify as a long-term memory, which is maybe why the whole only seven bits of information thing comes from, because actually stuff's what feels like is in your immediate memory is actually counting as long-term. Yes. And there's no limit to how much our long-term memory can hold or for how long. When you're saying information... Surely everything that we see, hear, sniff... Yeah, is information. ...is all information. So there must be so much useless information. Yeah, and I suppose... Yeah, by I suppose the wayside with that. You're ingesting new information, even if it doesn't feel like you are. Yeah. All oh, the like time. Like random people's faces that you're passing. It, and totally, yeah. It's just exhausting. I think about that a lot when I think about ch- children, like watching TV <laughs> or stuff. Yeah. Or like even just being out and about, and it's like... What stuff's going in that's going to come out at weird times? Again? I was thinking about that yesterday. Like, if something bad happens to a child, but it's like a one off thing, and, you know, they've got a really safe and stable home environment, one bad thing happens, the parents know it's happened, they do everything they can to kind of process it in a healthy way. You'd think, oh, one little small thing, like, I don't know, one person bullied them for one day at school like in the bigger picture that will that won't do any harm yeah. but anything at the wrong time yeah could completely dictate the path of someone's life yeah, yeah. you've got no control yeah which yeah. is why i suppose as another person you just have to try and be as careful as possible with other people but when you're a child you do so much stuff that is just so silly yeah <laughs> do you know what i mean well yeah no. My cat never forgave me. (laughs) (laughs) Now, let me tell you about how your long-term memory splits into two little sections, explicit long-term memory, which we consciously and deliberately take time to form, e.g. playing the bass. And in general, these memories can be either episodic or semantic, episodic as the name suggests, are formed from particular episodes in your life, like the first time you rode a bike. Or actually the thing it says is first day at school, which 
is in wow. here for me. Yeah. Um, or semantic memories, which are like general bits of information you absorb over the years, like something that you you learn and then like. Again, this is an example that I thought of myself and it was on the internet, which shows how beige I am. But like, you know, when you're doing a crossword and suddenly something comes, or you learn something from a crossword and then that comes out again in later life. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like sort of osmosis style learning. Yeah. Semantic memory is to do with the way in which you understand things. Right. I'm getting some blank looks from the ladies. (laughs) Well, no, I just, I was looking for the certainty in you. It, that I'm being certain. <laughs> <laughs> and then you have implicit long-term memory, which we touched on earlier, which aren't really deliberate at all, or at least not as much as explicit ones, and are often formed unconsciously, which then affects your, the way you think and the way you behave, like having been bullied at school one day or whatever. And then the last kind of thing about memory, I suppose, is the retrieval of memories and how that's kind of what, what we have it for i mean short-term memory obviously is used for really quick fire stuff like reading something back immediately or whatever but most of our engaging with our memory comes from long-term memory and the three types of memory retrieval are recall recognition and relearning well what's relearning a memory well i don't know because I don't know. <laughs> retrieval though is the process through which individuals access stored information but the way that we Retrieve information depends on whether it's stored in our short-term memory or our long-term memory. Short-term memory is retrieved in the order which it is stored, which is quite oh. cool. And long-term memory is retrieved through association. For example, remembering where you parked your car by returning to the entrance through which you first came. Also, Christian, who I work with, told me a mad fact about memory today as I was opening it out to the floor. And he said that there's a... Did you do any of your own research? <laughs> well, did you pack the best your own to bag learn? today, Jelly? <laughs> I did. He said that there's like a really, like a peer-reviewed study about how... He was like, oh yeah, you know the Tetris PTSD thing? And I was like, no, what's what? that? And he said that apparently if you... If something traumatic happens to you and in like the 48... Some, a lot of these facts are going to be wrong, but general gist. In the 48 hours after something happens if you play a load of tetris it stops you from having a traumatic response to the trauma because your brain's so focused on doing something else that it's not creating the neurons that then are triggered by various different things that induce a traumatic response apparently it's like a really famous thing yeah i love tetris well there you go keep it i was playing it last week just never been not near it. Well, thank you, ladies. I have to piss. She has to piss. <laughs> Look, let's get cracking. We haven't got all the time in the world. So Mensa <laughs> is my, my M. And now we're burning M. eggs. <laughs> now we're burning eggs. <laughs> I actually almost brought laughing cow cheese tonight. Oh, (gasps) sexy Vicky McClure. Yeah, I just thought it could be fun and delicious, but then I thought it could be a little bit creamy and foily. Yeah, well, you're already on clag level seven. Yeah, Yeah, but that would have helped things. Clag nine. I think, yeah, it would have taken you to clag nine. No, it would have smoothed out the journey. Mm -mm. (laughs) 
Okay. Okay. Look, Mensa. Mensa is, as you may know, the world's leading high IQ society. It is a non-for-profit organisation that it's made up of members. And to be a member of Mensa, all you have to do is take one IQ test ever. You never have to do repeat tests. And if you score in the top 2% of the population, you are invited to join Mensa. Wow. Now, what I didn't realise, I've always thought being part of Mensa... I pictured it as far more exclusive than it is in a way because I thought it was like a governing body almost. Like not really, but I didn't think it was as simple as you take a test and then you pay a monthly fee to be a member. Mm, I so smell a rat. You smell a rat. Well, again, I will reiterate, it's a non-for-profit organisation. Uh, so where's the money going from the, from the paying the fees? Well, I will tell you what you get with your £4.60 per month. Oh, that's not much. It's, it is, though. If you think about it, because you're you're in Mensa because you're good at something. So you think you should be rewarded with something. You get the reward of being able to yeah. pay £4.60 a month. Yeah. Cause Whatever it was. Your IQ is so high, you're probably doing some kick-ass job. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, let's, <laughs> let's, let's be honest. It is still half a Netflix account. Less than half. Yeah, yeah or like a large... Iced coffee. Although, as oh, that woman God. said, God, you know, we none of us can buy houses because we're spaffing so much money on Netflix. So. And avocados. And Which avocados. lady said? Some dumb bitch. <gasps> <laughs> Let's do this. <laughs> Who was it? Someone was like, yeah, wait, oh, the only reason that you can't yeah. afford to buy a house is because you're not saving your money properly. And we, everyone was like, um... You are talking about it? like a famous person. Yeah, like some columnist. Some, yeah. Yeah. Kirsty, yeah. Kirsty. Producer Will silly. tells Kirstie, us it's we Kirsty. People with houses love to tell everyone why they can't buy houses. Yeah. yeah. I wonder how she bought her house. Location, location, location. Mm. But isn't there something... No, I smell a rat. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, sorry, carry on. So what you get with your £4.60 per month membership after you've been admitted for having passed this test yeah. within a 98th percentile and, sorry, of society. Is it just an IQ test that anyone can access on the internet? Yeah, so there are like multiple specific... there are multiple IQ tests. I will go into this in a second, but there's a Mensa specific Mensa one, but they will accept there are a number of different IQ tests. They basically all assess the same thing. Okay. But if you want to be most direct about it, you can book through Mensa to do sit your test in a Mensa approved setting. And it's £29 something. £29 and a couple of pence. With your membership... <laughs> if you're trying to tell us this for so long, we keep interrupting you. You have access to such goodies as bi-monthly <laughs> editions of IQ, the Mensa magazine. Uh, regular emails with content related to your interests and location. Ooh. Invitations to exclusive member-only events. Oh. Virtual and in-person events at both local and national level. And discounts on Mensa merchandise. I had a good time on the Mensa shop online. What is the point of... <laughs> uh, no. What is the point of passing the test and paying to be a Mensa when any old Tom, Dick or Harry can go on the Mensa website and buy a mug? Oh, you don't have to be a member. No, we can buy T-shirts, mugs, cufflinks. Shall we? Mm. Maybe we should. Just cufflinks. Yeah. 
Um, but what do they do? Oh, good question. Good question. They just think they're better than everyone else. They just do. They, do they do it? Do they inform policy? Say no, not at all. I'm going to hold off on saying what they do because what I know about that is very limited. And what I will tell you is the history of Mensa. Please. Founded in 1946 in the UK by an Australian just expat. After the First World War, eh? Second. Just after the Second World War. The second, yeah. sorry. That's what I meant. I knew it and I meant it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, founded in 1946, the Yes Jelly, the year after the end of the Second World War, um, by two uh, gentlemen. Mm-hmm. One was an Australian expat in the UK barrister called Roland Beryl, and the other was a British man called Dr. Lance Ware. They met on a train and I get talking. And I think by the end of the train journey, they decided they had a fair bit in common. And they basically wanted to create a society for bright people. But it seems Uh, as time went by, they may have had different reasons for wanting to do that because Roland Beryl was a bit of an arsehole from the sounds of it. By his name. I mean, Lance Ware sounds pretty stuck up as well, but I think Lance was a bit more... More questioning, though. Where? Lance Ware. Roland Beryl. Roland Beryl, it seems, he became upset by how many people he deemed from, you know, dodgy backgrounds had entered the society. He wanted it to be like this aristocracy for brilliant minds. And he didn't like that brilliant minds can come from anywhere. God. Regardless of sex, race, socioeconomic background all of that stuff so that's when it was founded and the qualification was then as it still is that you score within the top two percent of this approved intelligence test mensa the word it means table in latin and the idea was it was supposedly representing society sitting as equals around this table regardless of your racial religious political or socio-economic distinctions but it's such a ridiculous idea because already you're narrowing it down to people that've passed this test and Beryl was anti anyone that wasn't aristocracy being in it anyway well so it seems I I don't think that they had established that between them when they first set it up but it's kind of like as as the years went by got it that became clearer do you reckon he was like oh yeah let them all try haha and yeah maybe (laughs) started going in and he was like yeah true maybe he was just so yeah so awful Mm. he really only pictured people just like him getting into it yeah mensa apparently just a fun fact also means stupid lady in spanish mm. oh. well there's a lot of things mean a lot of things in spanish that's true marika <laughs> don't <laughs> not on air <laughs> <laughs> so this is according to mensa's website today the three objectives of mensa as a society are to provide stimulating intellectual and social environment for its members, to identify and foster intelligence for the benefit of humanity, and to encourage research into the nature, characteristics and uses of intelligence. That's what they want to do. Whether that's what happens amongst members is another question. And I suppose what we really want to know is their measurement of intelligence is an IQ test. Is an IQ test the same thing as intelligence? Quite possibly not. IQ tests, so they measure your language skills, mathematical abilities, memory, processing speed, reasoning abilities, and visual spatial processing. But 
I don't hear anything about emotional intelligence. Well, there you go, Jelly. IQ and intelligence are very different things. Intelligence is multifaceted and it can't be scored with a number. And you have emotional intelligence, creativity, Mm. wisdom was even given as one. Whereas IQ is something that supposedly you can put a number on. Something that uh, an expert who a video I watched of the on the BBC said was like, IQ really isn't fixed. You can practice IQ tests and improve at them. And so your IQ can change drastically yeah. depending on what you're doing in life, even things like diet. What does IQ stand for? Intelligence quotient, which is a, basically it's how... I really find it confusing and I read it loads of times. I just don't get it really. But intelligence quotient is to find out your IQ, You, your, it's like your score divided by your age with a... I, I literally can't explain this to you. And then it's like with a standard deviation, right. it, it figures out your the, like the actual number of your IQ via some mathematic equation. And yeah. I think that's what your intelligence quotient is. Right. So I could be wrong. And I'm sure there are several members of Mensa listening now who I might, hope so. might like to write in and correct me. But the first IQ test, as we know it, was developed in 1905 by a French psychologist called Alfred Binet. And he was asked to develop it by the French state um, as a means of assessing the learning capabilities of children to figure out who needed extra help. Right. So it was basically like, are you learning at the age that you actually are or are you slower? So it was meant in a helpful way, but it then kind of got bastardised and used in different ways. And unsurprisingly, perhaps, they became used in the eugenics movement in the US in the early 20th century. Well, yeah, it is giving eugenics when Mm. you said about wanting to create a Well, yeah, this eugenicist Henry H. Goddard in 1908 published his own version of the test, which was a variation of um, Alfred Binet's test and promoted it. And he said it aimed to uh, basically eliminate undesirable traits. And he used the term feeble-minded to refer to people who didn't perform well on the test. He argued that feeble-mindedness was caused by heredity and thus feeble-minded people should be prevented from giving birth either by institutional isolation or sterilization surgeries. <gasps> and at that time, Fuck. this is crazy. I had no idea about this. California's sterilization program was so effective that the Nazis turned to the US government for advice on how to prevent the birth of the unfit. Whoa. Wow. And then after the Second World War, it became quickly unpopular in the US. The eugenics movement. But so IQ tests have been used to discriminate a lot in the course of history. But I don't think that's what Mensa is for. But it's just um, it's just worth noting that they've been used in all sorts of different ways. I suppose it's quite I mean, I'd never heard of it before you mentioned it. What Mensa? Yeah. As in it's not it doesn't feel like it's overtly trying to push any kind of agenda. I think most people probably wouldn't have heard of it. But I don't get the feeling they're a particularly influential or powerful group. They're not. Really, basically, what Mensa is, is it's just a society in the same way that I never was in one, but how I, how I picture like, being in a society at university, it just opens up uh, a selection of like events and talks that you can go to and gatherings. It can be something as simple as 
a pub meet and greet with other fellow mensons, as they call themselves. And I think I think for a lot of people, it's probably just about connecting with other people. And I read a few quotes on the website from people who are like, oh, I formed stronger friendships with people at Mensa than I have anywhere else. Aww. One thing I heard on this quite funny podcast I was just listening to, I'll tell you about in a moment, but basically I'll tell you about it now. This comedian <laughs> called Jamie Loftus, who's an American, she's done a podcast called My Year in Mensa. And I recommend it. It's quite amusing. But basically she, as a joke, did the test to see if she could get in for a column and then she actually got in and then so she just spent a year at Mensa just to see what was going on and quite quickly realised there was this sort of dodgy Facebook group which is Mensa approved. So it is officially approved by the society, but it's not moderated by anyone. Oh, wow. And it's basically a group where people can say anything without any repercussions on Facebook. And she said the stuff in there is kind of wild. Like it's just this burning hellhole of... Like what kind of stuff? Horrible yeah. opinions and racism right. and, okay, uh, yeah. all, you know, right. all the bad stuff. Yeah. And she, I think she'd, because she'd already done one column on her like insights into Mensa and the kind of undercover thing. And a couple of fellow, like like-minded fellow Mensons had contacted her just being like, oh, FYI, you should look at this Facebook group. But bear in mind before you write anything that most people in Mensa or a lot of people in Mensa would have been bullied when they were younger for being clever. Yeah. So like before you go in attacking everyone, just bear in mind that it's built on this bedrock of like bad, bad memory and I don't know, insecurity, so, yeah. a lot of it. But then she makes the point, well, that doesn't excuse racism and any of that stuff. But they're two separate points. I think basically who would want to join a society, which is just a badge saying, yes, you're very clever and then pay £4.60 a month to be in it. Like, there's, yeah. not, so weird. there's not really a noble reason for doing it. No. It's all about that validation that you somehow haven't got somewhere else. Yeah. I always pictured it that everyone would wear like lab coats and be walking around water features and things. Yeah. And, like small gardens in these kind of strange futuristic, like clever people places. No, I think more realistically what happens from two different accounts I read of people who like infiltrated it as writers slash comedians in different parts of America they have like these annual get-togethers in hotels and like all the Mensons will get rooms in the hotel. They sound kind of like college parties, right, but yeah. there's just in the daytime there are talks on things like the effects of coronavirus. Right. And then in the evening you just drink loads of wine and, oh, they have these stickers called hug stickers or something like that and each colour of sticker denotes whether you're comfortable with being hugged or not so there's a red one that's like you can hug me like I, you don't even need to ask yeah. then there's a yellow one which is like ask before you hug then there's a green one that's like have you got these colours the wrong way around yeah perhaps? I feel like green should be hug me okay maybe green is hug yeah. me <laughs> green is like hug me don't ask Someone's Yellow. not in Mensa. You're, you're right. Yeah, I hadn't, I'm really not in Mensa. Green is hug me, you don't need to ask. Yellow is ask me if you can hug me. Red is I don't want any hugs. And then there's a blue one, which just means I'm single. Now that 
is the first time I've heard these menses come up with a good idea. Well, that's what this woman said. She's like, it's amazing, but at the same time, it's completely bizarre to imply that if you're single, you don't get to choose whether you want oh, to. Oh, so not, not that. I mean, more the hug traffic light. No, I think to is, be fair. I'm nice, sh- because I generally will go for a hug, but I do often think... People really don't like it sometimes, and I don't want to be invading people's personal space. Oh, I thought you meant the blue sticker was the good idea. No, I like the traffic light system for hugging. Yeah. No, I think she said that that was probably the best thing that she came across. Now that I've done a bit more reading about it, I am less likely to ever want to try and be in it. Yeah. It's just a group for people to get together who are maybe a bit socially awkward. And I hate that anyway. Yeah. Yeah. What groups? Yeah. Just that kind of a situation. Yeah. It's like networking. Yeah. For- well, she, the woman on the podcast, Jamie Loftus, she describes arriving at the convention, not convention, you know, annual meeting, and uh, getting to the cafeteria and all the tables are divided by subjects. And she said it was like more daunting than arriving for your first day at school and choosing where to sit. And they're literally labelled one table as like pet lovers, and she was like, oh, that's a safe place to sit. No one's going to judge me if I sit there. But um, Wow, how very weird. I guess it's just for people that love compartment, yeah. compartmentalising and being like, well, you're this kind of person, you're this one and I'm this. Yeah. I suppose it creates a safe social situation in that there is always going to be a prompt yeah. to, uh, like, to talk about. But yeah, that's really all I've got to say about it. Thank you, Gina. <laughs> I'm good for go, baby. All right. Okay. Well, this is. I'm just going to tell you a bit of a story. Perfect. But just interject at any point and I'll see if I can answer any questions. Um, but maybe it's a nice little wind down for the end of the fascinating episode we've just recorded. Sorry if I fall asleep. Oh, please do. So I was actually going to do mysteries. So I googled mysteries and then I thought the Bermuda Triangle needs its whole own episode. I'm not going to try and spread myself thinly across. It's also, yeah, it's not called the Bermuda Triangle. Well, exactly. But as in, if I was going to do mysteries, <laughs> oh, no, the good. point being, hang on, no, that's <laughs> not what I was saying. Nothing gets past That's her. not what I was saying. Um, <laughs> as in, if I was going to do mysteries, I'd have to pick like four right. or something out of that, obviously, including the Bermuda the Triangle. The Bermuda Triangle. I thought I'm not going to spread myself thin. And then I saw a little name pop up, the Mary Celeste. Hmm. Or I think it's actually just Mary Celeste. And I clicked on it. Is it a ghost ship? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) She's going to get there. Yeah, and don't try and jump the gun. I'm trying to tell a story. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Planned out. You said please do interject. Yeah, but not with just... (laughs) um, And anyway, I found it fascinating. And I realised I did... I had heard of it before because it's actually used in phrases, which... Mary Celeste! Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You've heard that, right? Quite a high pitch. Oh, yes. So, Celeste, this bus is big. (laughs) Well, that's that's what's going to happen after this goes out. I've never heard that as a phrase. That's not a phrase. That's not the phrase it's used in. Okay. It's bigger than the Mary Celeste! (laughs) Nope, not that either. (laughs) More, more. No. (laughs) (laughs) Smells worse than the Mary Celeste in here. (laughs) I mean, yeah, maybe. 
Mary Celeste. <laughs> Sorry. Marie. She is a ship <gasps> who was built in 1861 <gasps> in Nova Scotia, originally called Amazon. So she had a bit of a funny journey before she ended up being Mary Celeste. Some would say cursed. So the first master of the ship, (laughs) um, Robert McLellan, um, just randomly got very, very ill and died very suddenly. This was shortly after she'd just been sort of birthed. On her maiden voyage, she ran into some a fishing dam off. The sea. That doesn't make any sense. The Sargasso Sea. <laughs> Sealed anus. <laughs> she basically crashed and had yeah. to have loads of big repairs. The first time she crossed the Atlantic, she crashed into another ship and that ship sank. Oh, God. Um, Sounds like she's not got very good sailors on board. Well, you'd say that, but that doesn't ring true for the the main the caliber of the thrust of the story. She also ran aground off when she was coming back to America that time. Mary Celeste, we've run aground. Nope. And... <laughs> <laughs> Most of the people that owned her, and because she got like passed around quite a lot, they all went bankrupt. Oh, she is a bad omen. And she ended up being bought as kind of like a wreckage, like scraps that then got completely rebuilt. So that was Amazon, and she got turned into Mary Celeste. Uh, they thought changing the name would help. Right. It did not. Oh. <laughs> so. Oh. This is great. a dark and stormy it. night. Already. Was it a dark and no. stormy night? Okay. <laughs> it was a cool, calm, collected day. It was November the 5th, mm. oh. 1872. Gunpowder, treason and plot. Yes. But not today. <laughs> um, <laughs> she was setting sail to Genoa with a cargo of 1,701 barrels of raw commercial alcohol in her hold. My, my. Sounds mm. like a perfect night out. Mm-hmm. What a lovely little voyage. And she was captained by Benjamin Briggs, um, who was a very capable captain, very well respected in his industry, um, who brought along his wife, who was also his cousin. True sea woman. Very capable captain. Very capable captain. Did you catch that? Wife wife and cousin, yeah. Wife and cousin. Yeah. One person, Sarah. Sarah. First? Yes, I assume so. And their two year old daughter. Um, they had a and crew. cousin <laughs> and niece, <laughs> second cousin once removed. Um, also on the ship were seven other cousins, capable, <laughs> capable cousins. <laughs> so a lovely cousin crew of ten. <laughs> so that is it. But yeah, that's it. <laughs> and off they went. No, okay. So meanwhile, Mary Celeste was being prepared to sail, um, and there was. Another ship, a Canadian ship, in New Jersey, so very nearby, that was just awaiting a cargo of petroleum, and it was going to Genoa as well via Gibraltar. So this other this other ship is getting all prepared to go, and they're going the same route, and the captains sort of knew each other a bit. Whatever, that's not madly relevant. Cousins, were they? <laughs> <laughs> they knew each other by blood. <laughs> um, so they pop off. Eight days after Mary Celeste doing exactly the same route. Yeah. On December the 4th, midway between... Now, how do you say this? Those little Portuguese islands. Is it Azores? Azores. Ooh, I, yeah. I think I would say Azores. Azores. But I'd, I think I... Azor. Azor. I Azores. And the coast how of Portugal. How are we spelling it? A-Z-O-R-E-S. I think the Azores. The Azores. The Azores. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in the midpoint between the Azores and the coast of Portugal, the crew of this Canadian ship 
spot a vessel heading unsteadily towards them at a distance of about six miles. Well, she do have a lot of alcohol on board. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The ship's erratic (laughs) movements and the odd set of her sails led the captain to suspect that something was wrong. So as Mary Celeste gets closer, he's trying to make signals. They're putting up the flags and bing, bang, bong, and and there's no, no response. So he sends two of his sailors to investigate so they go and board the ship and it was completely bloody deserted <gasps> no not a soul on board um, oh god ghost so, ship yeah but it didn't start as a ghost ship okay yeah and yeah. also the ship is still you know like rock solid yeah come in <laughs> sorry, sorry. Um, so right this is Mary where Celeste <laughs> what are you doing here <laughs> to be fair at the end of all this I actually don't know how you would use it in a phrase so you're coming up with all these good ideas but for the future. But you do know it was used in a phrase. You can use it basically when they use it as an example of... She was like a deserted ship. Mary like, Celeste. oh, it's... Ooh. Yeah. It's been Mary celeste Right. Anyway, so the sails were partly set, so they weren't up nor down. And they were a little bit a little bit rugged, nothing wild. And the some of the rigging was damaged. There were sort of ropes hanging over the sides and things like that. The main hatch was shut, but some of the other hatches were open with their covers just next to them. And the ship's single lifeboat was missing, as well as the ship's compass had had the glass on top of it broken. But then the cabin interiors were fine, completely normal, nothing wrong with them, just a bit of water in because all the windows and stuff had been left open. There were personal items scattered around, but a lot of the ship's papers were missing and a few navigational instruments. Everything in the kitchen was neatly stowed away. There was no food prepared or in the process of being prepared. There were ample provisions to last six months in the stores. There were no signs of fire or violence. And the evidence shows that it was an orderly departure from the ship via the lifeboat, albeit hurried because it was cut rather than untied. So something got somebody panicked. All of the alcohol was still on board. Well, nine of the barrels were empty. So all the barrels were there, but nine barrels were empty. That's a lot of alcohol. Yeah, it's a lot, and it's like raw alcohol. Could that have been consumed by the sailors before they'd abandoned ship? That's kind of the only weird thing that's going on, so that gets pulled into a lot of the different theories, and there are a lot of theories. But the ship hadn't been struck by heavy weather either because a vial of sewing machine oil was just found upright next to the sewing machine in its place, and there'd been no collision and it hadn't run aground. So it's all very strange. Pirates? Um, So the thing with pirates which is obviously where a lot of people's brains go for. They didn't steal anything. Mm. So there'd be absolutely... like, in theory, the alcohol missing from the barrels, but then what would you put it into? Also, you would take all of the, like, fancy possessions from the rooms, yeah. like, over the barrels of alcohol. And you wouldn't leave the barrels. You would roll them onto the boat. Yeah. And there was no, like, evidence of, like... There was no blood. There was no evidence of, like, a scuffle. Yeah, and why would the pirates take them? Also, apparently there weren't really pirates... Like what year hanging was this out. Again? I think it was 18, 1872. As in, there were, but in this area where they mm. where it got abandoned. Yeah, and they've got the ship's log, much <laughs> like a goat's log. <laughs> um, and there's a mention of ominous rumbling and small explosions from the hold. So that's what's like jelly scientifically. <laughs> scientifically, <laughs> jelly was in a barrel. Um, so it's the least fun theory but it's the most scientific, is that... Because obviously alcohol, they give off Uh, noxious gases 
and it can be quite explosive. And so those little rumblings and things will just be like kind of mini, just little explosions going on and they don't really leave residue. So that's why you wouldn't have seen like a fiery residue when they boarded it. And the barrels were intact, but the alcohol gone. Yeah, only nine of the barrels Yeah, out of a thousand and... Oh, 1,000 yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. it was. Uh, yeah. So people think that maybe there was just one day there was a bigger explosion and Briggs just freaked out and was like, because maybe the idea that the whole thing could go up and was just like, get off the boat. And then they got into the lifeboat and then disappeared and yeah. everyone died. That's the most sciencey one that people like to like fall back on. Also, so I believe... So the nine barrels that were found empty were made of a different kind of oak than the other barrels. They were made from red oak and the other ones were made from white oak. And red oak is more porous. So it's also likely that they were just leaking over the course of the month that they were at sea. And that's why those ones were empty and not the others and that there wasn't anyone drinking it. But anyway, so pirates is probably a no-no because it doesn't make any sense. Nothing valuable got taken, all the food, everything. Insurance was another one. Oh, yeah. But the ship wasn't owned by Briggs. Yeah. Even if he had been working with James Winchester, who did own the boat, it wasn't really a big enough claim on it anyway to have, like, it was just not worth it for that for much risking, of a stunt. Yeah. And also you'd you'd go and, like, dash it on some rocks. You wouldn't just let it float around. Yeah. I'm intrigued by the fact that the compass is smashed. I know, that's really weird. Yeah. If the glass casing that houses the compass was smashed... Maybe he was trying to get it out when they escaped to use it as a navigational device. Yeah, maybe. So no storm. There was no storms reported in that area over that time um, and nothing about the boat suggests storms. One of the ones that you mentioned earlier, drunken crew. Crew will drink the alcohol and go absolutely crazy and kill each other and then a few of them escape. No blood or anything on the boat or evidences of a scuffle. Also, Briggs was a, quite a religious teetotaler, so probably wouldn't have allowed drinking on the boat anyway. Mm. And they all seemed to respect each other quite a lot as a crew before they left, and he picked them all and off of good recommendation, etc., etc. So that kind of doesn't really chuck mm. out. There's one that is a water spout, you know, like a tornado at sea, where they make those things, and it's like if that would have, uh, what is it, either decreased or increased the pressure. I can't remember which one it would be, which would make boats like that have a natural amount of water kind of in the hold anyway. And then with that amount of cargo, it's very hard to measure where it is. So that would have pulled the water up to make it feel like there was much more water in the ship. So then it would have been like, it's sinking, got off the ship. And then actually when that had passed, it would have all just dropped down again. Uh, Potential. It does feel like the most likely is that they all just mistakenly thought something was wrong and left. Yeah. But then so they would have had to die to not go back to the boat or gone ashore. But... It depends because the boat still had its sails half up. So if it had caught oh, a yeah. wind, they might then have just lost it. It would have just gone in a direction that had just been in a rowing boat. So they'd be screwed. The other thing is they had seen land. So they were actually, I think, about five, 400, 500 miles away from where the boat got found when they did their last log. <laughs> uh. And that was in sight of one of the islands. 
like right off the coast. So it would have maybe made sense that something perhaps had gone wrong and then they were taking a chance at abandoning the boat and going... And gone ashore. Ashore, but, but there's it no, went wrong. And there's no record of any of them... None of them. ...after setting sail? Nope. Or the last log, Com- I suppose? Completely disappeared. Gosh, that's weird. Really weird. Yeah. What do you think? I think it probably was something some explosiony things that just freaked them out he had his two-year-old child on board so he was probably also like a little yeah, bit more cautious cautious because but he by all character sort of profiling on the internet definitely not the kind of captain to like abandon a perfectly seaworthy boat like it could be sailed this this canadian boat they, they took it all the way back to get investigated so they sailed it back and what happened to it after yeah that? did it ever sail again Yes, she, it did. Never gonna say it did. Again. They did it had a bit of a refurb and sailed again. I think still weirdly, like other people, kind of around it just died. And then I think one of its owners did do an insurance destruction on it, and that was the death of her. Wow, my gosh! I think she's haunted. Oh, I think she's haunted. I know. I I feel like she's definitely like there's curse or something floating around. Yeah, there's something spooky That's about too her. Weird. Or maybe aliens. <gasps> I wonder what happened in that lifeboat. Yeah. Oh, I'd love to know. I know. They should make a film out of it. I hate, I, I actually hate mysteries. <laughs> what, because you can't sit with the not knowing? Well, especially ones that are like so old, because mm. it's just like, that's so far removed, there's nothing you can do now. Yeah. And it was, I suppose anything goes a bit more. The thing with most of these things is that the most obvious explanation is often the thing that actually happens. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So when Detective you, Deniston's back. When you hear hoofs, think horses, not zebras. Oh, that's a good mm. saying. Mm. I haven't heard that before. What about if you are on safari? Well, <laughs> you always can get me, don't you? <laughs> and that's why she's in Mensa. No. Yeah, if anyone is in this room. I don't know why you say that. Because you love you puzzles. You both could be. You both happily could be. We three could be. Give the test a try. See how you fair. And if anyone listening is in Mensa and has anything to share with us, please do send us a direct message yeah, on Instagram. Or if you were on the Mary Celeste, please do get in contact. <laughs> yeah. Your family are very worried about you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to episode M of A is 4. Join us next week as we navigate nudism, nail down Nostradamus, and never say never to near-death experiences. M is four, M is four, M is four.